0: Namo bhagavato arahato sammasambuddhassa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato sammasambuddhassa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato
1: sammasambuddhassa
0: Namotasa, Bangurato, Arahato, arato Samudasa, Budong Saranam, Gachami, Dharma Sorry. Sorry.
1: Nyatipada Varamini Sakapadam Samady I undertake the precept
0: to refrain from harming living
2: beings.
0: Adina Dana Varamini
1: Sakapadam Samadhyani I undertake the precept to Refrain from taking That which is not not given. Kamesu michachara veramini sakapadam samadhi ami. I undertake the the precept precept to to refrain from from sexual
0: misconduct. misconduct. Musavada
1: veramini sakapadam samadhi ami. I undertake the precept to refrain from wrong speech. Sura Mareya Maja Bhadatana Sakapadam Samadhi I undertake the precept to refrain from intoxicants that cause carelessness. I undertake the precept to refrain from sources of livelihood that bring harm to to other
2: beings. I undertake undertake the precept precept to refrain from acting acting out of ill will or taking satisfaction in the misfortune of others.
0: I undertake undertake the precept precept to be open-hearted and generous in all my relationships with others. others. I
1: undertake the precept to act with loving-kindness and compassion in all my relationships
2: with others.
0: I undertake the precept to live with mindfulness
1: and follow the Eightfold Path through daily study, meditation, and reflection. With these ten precepts, virtue becomes the vehicle for a happy existence. Through virtue, good fortune is attained. Virtue is the vehicle for liberation. Let us purify our virtue. This completes the ten precepts. May all beings be free from suffering. May all beings be free from ill will. May all beings be filled with loving kindness. May all beings make themselves truly happy. Thank you, and Good evening. Good evening. How is everyone? Good. Getting there.
2: Getting
1: there. Oh, good, good, good. So, um, does anyone have anything on their mind, in terms of the Dhamma, that they would really like to hear about?
2: What's,
1: what's on your mind? There's <laughs> <laughs> many things on my mind. What I had thought I would do, if no one had anything in particular, is that I would just begin speaking about the uh, Four Noble Truths and see, what, see where that led and see what came from there. Super.
2: Okay.
1: And it looks like no one else has anything to suggest, so we'll begin there. The first truth that the Buddha taught, of the four truths, was the truth, it's called the truth of suffering often in English. I don't know, I don't know what the Chinese equivalent would be, but, um, but the word that's translated into English as suffering is in the Pali, dukkha, and dukkha has a much, much broader meaning than does the English word suffering. And so, in that regard, that that's a common translation, but it can be somewhat misleading. In Chinese, we
3: translate ku.
1: Ku? Mm-hmm. What does what uh, what does ku suggest?
2: Bitter bitter taste.
1: Bitter taste. Pain. Unpleasantness, huh?
2: S- yes. Yeah. Um, s- yeah. yeah. There's a lot of meaning. If you add a tongue, ku means pain included.
1: Tongku. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that in Pali, the language that the sutras were originally written down in, that uh, pain is dukkha-dukkha, and the word dukkha means uh, unsatisfactory, unpleasant, imperfect, uh, anything that is dissatisfactory in any degree. And so, uh, of course, Suffering is an extreme degree of unsatisfactoriness, but the word also includes more subtle forms of, of, of dissatisfactoriness uh, and unpleasantness. And when we look at uh, dukkha, we also recognize that there, it, it does refer to physical pain but it also refers to all of the many different kinds and degrees of mental pain. So we can divide dukkha into these two parts, and we can understand dukkha as meaning uh, the pain, the uh, unpleasant sensation coming from the physical sense- senses, which we usually refer to as pain, There's bodily pain and that comes from injury, burning and uh, tearing and crushing and things like that, aching. There's also, of course, the minor bodily pains that can be, even though as pain they're minor, as dukkha they can be very strong, like insect bites, itching, uh, things like that. There is also uh, certain odors which are strongly unpleasant in themselves, and tastes that are unpleasant. Uh, certain combinations of sounds are very unpleasant to to the ear and produce a kind of painfulness. Um, you know, the old-fashioned uh, blackboards. If somebody scraped their fingernails on, on an old-fashioned blackboard, you know. <laughs> uh, so you could call that a painful sound, right? Yeah. <laughs> With the eye, you know, the eye is, is much more of a neutral sense, although, you know, there's certain combinations of colors that are somewhat somewhat offensive, but it's, it's difficult to say <laughs> that there's anything that the eye experiences pain. But there's the diff- the, there are various degrees of... Unpleasantness associated with all of the sen- senses, but uh, the the physical pain of the body is probably the the clearest and most distinctive of the uh, of the of the dukkha dukkhas. but then there's that huge range of the other kind of of dukkha, the mental suffering dissatisfactoriness Uh, displeasure, unpleasantness. Now the truth of dukkha is that every aspect of human existence is pervaded by dukkha in one of its forms and to some degree or another. And that's understandable but it's not immediately obvious to the person the first time they encounter this. Because after all, there's many pleasures in the world, right? There's many occasions of happiness. But there are there is the obvious presence of physical pain and the inescapability of physical pain. So if we look at human life, we know that we can count on experiencing physical pain due to sickness and aging. And, uh, the, uh, and the process of dying uh, includes its own pain. So birth uh, birth and death and also sickness and, and aging uh, are associated with pain. And then there is, of course, as we go through our life day to day, many different sources of physical pain. You, you disregard much of the physical pain that's in your daily life. As a matter of fact, if you look closely, you spend a lot of your time and energy in your daily life uh, avoiding minor degrees of physical pain. One of the things that happens when you sit still to meditate is you discover the pain that comes from sitting still. And if you observe yourself at other times, you find that you're always moving. You sit in a particular position and it becomes uncomfortable, so you, you shift and you move. And there's, um, you know, independently of any external factor, we have itches on the skin, and without thinking about it, you know, we'll, we'll scratch a place that itches. We're always relieving all these little kinds of pain. Then, of course, you do things, and there's pain associated with that. Even lying in bed at night in a comfortable bed, you lay long enough in a particular position, it becomes unpainful, and so you you turn over. So you are constantly experiencing greater or lesser degrees of physical pain as a part of life. And this is part of the truth of suffering. But the more important part of the truth of suffering is the mental pain in all of its various forms that pervades every part of life, and which uh, also Uh, There are, let's stop using the word pain, mental unsatisfactoriness that is a part of every aspect of life that pervades our, our human existence. And not so easily seen, because we do, there are many causes of sensual pleasure. And so we can ask ourselves, and it's important to ask ourselves, uh, in what way you know the Buddha said that dukkha dissatisfactoriness kinda of characterizes every aspect of life. So what is there about pleasurable experience that is dis- inherently dissatisfactory? And I'm wondering if any of you have any thoughts on that.
4: Mm-hmm. Impermanent.
1: The fact that it's impermanent, exactly. That is one aspect of it immediately. It's like a, yes.
5: it's kind of like an addiction. The doses you need to be satiated become mm-hmm. incrementally um, more and
1: more. It's like, uh, it's like alcohol. Yes, that's, no. how, that's <laughs> another thing that's unsatisfactory about pleasure is that the same... The degree of pleasure becomes less satisfying as as you re-experience it and as time goes by. Yes? Anything else about pleasure?
2: We yes. are easily to get bored and then at the same time we are so afraid of changing.
1: Yes, that's very true. So, as I, I think maybe what you're referring to is what at one time was a source of pleasure ceases to be pleasurable, though we continue to hold on to the same activities and situations even though they are no longer satisfying. Is that what you're referring to? It's a
2: It's it's a, at the same time, mm-hmm. I mean, we're seeking for security. Mm-hmm. And then we're easy to get bored.
1: Mm-hmm. That the, the satisfaction passes away easily.
2: Easily, sure. yes. Because we're looking for something more exciting, mm-hmm. uh, never satisfied. Mm-hmm. But when we're seeking for changing, mm-hmm. uh, back there we are so afraid of changing. We, are, we, we don't have a flexibility. We wanted to hold down something that we feel comfortable, yeah. but something comfortable make you bored.
1: Yes. Okay.
3: So uh, the dissatisfaction also come from the, the strong, a lot of desire, want mm-hmm. to get something but cannot obtain that. So there's a lot of uh, dissatisfaction.
1: That. Yes, the the, uh, the experience of desire is, if you examine it, the experience of desire is wanting something to be different than it is. Even if you have a good thing, you want more of the good thing. So, in the moment of wanting more of the good thing, you are in that moment dissatisfied. Right? So, Desire is inherently a state of dissatisfaction. Anytime there is desire, it means that you are dissatisfied. And that is is dukkha. That's the most subtle form of dukkha. So, yes, if we examine our lives, we experience pleasure and happiness, not just sensual pleasure, but the pleasures, the, the other kinds of pleasures that, uh, are available in life. We experience these pleasures. uh, They please us, and we respond to them in a variety of ways. First of all, we can just enjoy it, but no matter how much we enjoy it, it's only temporary. And then there will be the passing away of the pleasure and uh, the longing for it. Once we have experienced a particular kind of pleasure uh, we may ha- commonly do wish to re-experience that pleasure, or, or to obtain more of whatever it is that, that uh, we consider to be the source of the pleasure. And if you look at your life, what this often leads to is expending a great deal of time and energy trying to obtain some pleasure and satisfaction. which. Sometimes you fail to do it all. It's completely unsuccessful, and all that time and energy is wasted. Sometimes you succeed, but the results are disappointing compared to what you expected them to be, so that the reward that you get in the end, you have to question whether it's really worth the time and the energy that you put into uh, obtaining those Our pursuit of pleasure can cause us to do things that impact on other people in negative ways. And then even if we succeed in obtaining the pleasure that we uh, wished for, we are going to experience the consequences of those negative impacts we had on other people later on. Often what happens when we experience something that's pleasurable too is that the thought a thought like this occurs that that, oh, this is wonderful, but it's going to pass away. We know that it's impermanent. And what happens when that when you have that thought? Comes instead of just enjoying the pleasure that's present in the moment, you lose the pleasure to the thought of the future when you will no longer have the pleasure. Or a similar thing that happens is that instead of just enjoying the pleasure, your greed is aroused and you move directly from pleasure to dissatisfaction because you want more of the pleasure. You either want to hold on to it or you want to get more of it. And in either case, what happens to the quality of the the pleasure that's there in the moment. It fades away. Then, of course, we get the thing that we want, and we lose it. It's broken, it's stolen, it disappears, it wears out. And what happens then? We experience grief. All the people that you love will die. You will eventually lose everything that is important to you. So this is another aspect, too, and if you think about it, in what way is pleasure a cause of, of dukkha, dissatisfaction, grief, unhappiness, it's that it creates the attachment, and inevitably the loss will occur in one way or another. So that, that pleasure itself creates the seeds for the grief in the future. So this this first truth is really bringing us an awareness that the whole of our life and all of our activities as we normally live it and as we approach it, is in a sense doomed to failure because what we we do constantly is try to obtain pleasure and to avoid pain. But we see it's never going to succeed. We're always going to end up dissatisfied to some degree in one way or another, and even even the satisfactions that we do obtain set us up for future grief. So looked at it from the point of view of, of change and impermanence. So this is the truth this is the truth of suffering. Now one thing about this is to keep clear is that there are these two different kinds of dukkha. One is the bodily pains that are inevitable. There is no, there is no uh, escape from the fact that you live uh, by virtue of the, a body. And a body is subject to pain, illness, aging, and death. And so there is that one aspect of dukkha which is completely inescapable. But if we put our attention on the other aspect of dukkha, which is all the different kinds of mental, psychological dissatisfaction, unhappiness, grief uh, that we experience, this this is where the potential is for liberation. Anything about the truth of suffering that anyone wants to comment on or expand upon?
5: Um, I don't know if this is is an okay question. You can Mm -hmm. decide not to answer (laughs) if you don't want to. Um, So, so the source of. I I think I'm probably jumping too far, and I should probably hold this question.
1: Okay. All right. Because we're what we're doing is... Yeah, let's take it one step at a time yes. and we'll get to the other thing. It's just this... this Here we have the perhaps the greatest sage of all time who said every aspect of human existence is pervaded by this dukkha, this unsatisfactoriness in all of its different degrees. And it's just to satisfy ourselves that so we can understand that and, and agree with it, or what are the reservations or hesitations that we might have and, and to explore that? So if you have any hesitations or explore, or, or, or questions, of, or do you totally accept that, well, this is really true, that the nature of human existence is pervaded by dissatisfactoriness, because even at the moment... Of that ultimate orgasmic pleasure—it's going to pass away at the at, at the very least, and then it's gone.
5: Well, one of the most uh, uncomfortable things is fear, and fear is uh, as a result of, of, of craving, of these kind of sensual craving. Mm-hmm. It seems like a hundred percent of fear is the result of craving, as far as I can tell. Is that correct?
1: What What is? Mm-hmm. I, I would agree with that. What is fear, the, uh, what, what kind of craving is fear?
5: Uh, fear of losing uh, the things that we, we, we find very precious, mm-hmm. and the fear of, well, the fear of impermanence, pretty much.
1: The fear of, fear of loss, fear yeah, what are you, you're, you're afraid of dying? Right. You're afraid of having your material objects uh, disappear? afraid of having the people that you care about disappear right losing a limb losing eyesight everything yeah
2: and yeah. and also fear of permanent like if you got stuck with someone mm-hmm. you dislike yeah if that's, permanent, that's, right. that's very fearful
1: yeah and that's actually another aspect of of dissatisfaction you know is uh, is having the things that you don't want i mean we yeah we uh, we didn't really talk about that aspect of it but I mean, pain is something that you don't want. Right. Unhappiness is something you don't want. Bad odors are something that you don't want. Bad companions are something that want. Yeah.
2: If they're permanent,
1: yeah. then it's right. horrible. And, uh, and that's one of the things that makes pain worse. If you have a pain, uh, and it's this bad, and then you have the thought, and it's never going to go away, then it becomes this bad, right? right. Right. So, <laughs> but another thing we have fear fear of is, is pain. So um, yes, fear fear is rooted in uh, desire and aversion. It's you you can fear losing the things that you desire. You can fear uh, not getting the things that you desire. You can fear experiencing pain and you can fear uh, or other unpleasant things and you can fear there not being an end to the pain that you experience too So, uh,
4: also fear of uh, uncertainty for example like uh, that uh, I think people not only afraid of physical pain but also okay. afraid of where
1: of
0: the unknown of, right yes yes that's true Yeah. yeah.
4: from from my understanding to achieve full liberation means to sort of transcend this constant back and forth between pain and pleasure and and so forth Um, and is it not that you achieve sort of some level of of joy that sort of transcends all all, of that um, back and forth sort of thing but is, wouldn't that sort of sense of joy that you achieve sort of be
1: relative as well and impermanent? and Absolutely, it would, yes. Yeah. That's the problem, and that's, yeah, that, that's a very good point, because you could imagine that if you could have, you could imagine having some kind of a, a, a joy that... Uh, would make all everything else irrelevant and then you wouldn't have to worry about pain and losing things and, and so forth. But if it's if it's the kind of if it's the kind of joy that we're normally familiar with, then it's it has causes and so it's going to have an end. It's like a drug. You know, uh People who use uh, narcotic drugs, it relieves the pain—the pain in their mind, the pain in their body, the pain in their spirit—but the drug always wears off. The relief, uh, the relief, the release, the pleasure that they obtain—it's actually a very good. It's a very good uh, example of the whole uh, principle of the first truth. Because a, a drug, a person becomes addicted to one of these narcotic drugs, because they use it, and it relieves all of their worry, their pain, their unhappiness, their anxiety, and it replaces it with a sense of pleasure. So for the time that the drug lasts, all of these negative things are gone. But. One of the problems with the drug is that it is impermanent, that it passes away, just as we said with the pleasures that we experience in the world. And of course, the person will go back and use it again and again. But one of the things that happens is there is always then the knowledge that this too is going to pass away. The other thing is just as we get bored with the pleasures, the drug ceases to produce the same effect that it once did. And then, of course, there is the, the difficulty and the cost and the challenge of obtaining the drug. So, really, what you, what you would see in a heroin addict is what you see in every human being who, through ignorance, is trying to achieve, trying to avoid pain and achieve satisfaction through the things of the world. If I can only have this, if I can only avoid that, if I have more money, better job. Yeah,
3: Yeah, Cynthia, you already talked about that. And I think here has uh, some degree vague and confused. As what? Some degrees vague vague and confused is regarding to the Dukkha, is that um, normally we thinking about Dukkha is that we want to avoid Dukkha Mm-hmm. And pursue the pressure. and and for my understanding, this is not the, the uh, third degree Buddha's teaching. You know, is not avoid the the uh, by do the behavior or something to avoid and 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 uh, dukkha. You know, is from the, so sometimes when we in daily life that I think usually we confuse. You know, what's mean the uh, leaving dukkha. Mm-hmm. In verse, you know, push away the dukkha and, and, and pursue the pleasure. Mm-hmm. Could you explain, uh, explore a little bit more of that?
1: Well, I, what everyone already does is try to avoid what they see as the causes of dukkha. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. And to obtain what they see as the causes of pleasure, sukha. S- sukha is the word in Pali, but that corresponds to dukkha and means pleasure. So this is what people are already doing. As they become somewhat more refined in their perception, they may seek uh, through meditation, spiritual path, and so forth, other ways to push away and avoid dukkha. And this is sort of what we're talking about there. Somebody who imagines that the fruit of the spiritual path is a joy that will drown out all the dukkha. And that's a way of avoiding it. And this is uh, this is not actually what the teaching is. You see, we need to proceed to look at the other truths. The second truth is the truth of the cause of dukkha. And then the third truth is the cause... Uh, uh, the third truth is... The cessation of dukkha. Now that is what we're what we're after is the cessation of dukkha. But we arrive at the cessation of dukkha uh, by by first coming to the truth of the of the cause of dukkha, and then the fourth truth, of course, is the way to achieve the cessation of dukkha. So, uh, it this is what we need to then understand. And this is what we should move to now: is the cause of Dukkha. Uh-huh. Yes. Yeah?
4: How, how does it? Uh, what is it like to see uh, Dukkha through meditation? Is it possible? Um,
1: to see Dukkha. Through, to
4: understand Dukkha, like yeah. our understanding of Dukkha, probably conceptually makes a lot of sense, but we. With... Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, that is uh, <clears throat> that is one of the primary objectives of meditation. Is to to go beyond conceptually understanding the truth that uh, you know we we look at what we've been doing here is we're looking at life from the point of view that 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 we normally look at reality anyway, and we're seeing that within the context of that normal way of seeing reality that. There is this this dukkha, and, and satisfying ourselves that in indeed what the Buddha says that this dukkha is all pervading. What we do in meditation is find, uh, is come to a different way of viewing reality. In other words, we see things the way that they really are, and in seeing the way things that really are then we come to a knowledge of dukkha that is much more profound, much deeper than the one that we're talking about right now.
4: So there is a stage in, in one's meditation practice? There's a
1: stage in one's meditation practice where the truth of dukkha becomes completely apparent. Yeah. And and the meditator, the yogi, yogi has the experience that this is true. Absolutely life as it's experienced is is just saturated, permeated with dukkha, and there is there is no escape from it within the context of the way that we normally view and understand things and the way we normally do. And, and everybody experiences this. Is, is it a necessary condition for enlightenment? It is a necessary condition for enlightenment. It can happen in different ways. <clears throat> it can happen in a very painful way. <laughs> Discovering this, and, oh, wow, that's all there is. <laughs> it's just, I mean, that could be very terrible. Right? And some people experience it as a very painful, unpleasant, uh, despair-inducing experience. It depends on the kind of meditation practice you do and how you arrive at that understanding, because you can also arrive at that same realization, and it's more of a, aha, and it's it's like it's it's more of a relief. It's like ah, now I see, you know. But that's a realization that's bolstered by an inner peace and an inner happiness that's been generated by the meditation. In a way, I'm not totally sure what your question was, or what your comment was getting at, but on the way to the ultimate transcending of dukkha, we can discover the reality of dukkha with this powerful medicine of meditative joy and equanimity. And if we have meditative joy and equanimity, which are temporary, But if we have the benefit of them at the time that we discover this true nature of dukkha, this all-pervading nature of dukkha, then it allows us to confront this truth and accept this truth without experiencing a great deal of pain and misery. But either way, you need to move on to the next stage, which is the cessation of dukkha.
2: Can I use this assembly I I learned from other mm. teacher?
0: Yeah.
2: Maybe it's from the sutra. The temple, all, yes. yes. yeah. yeah. uh, all his life is in the water.
1: Yes. Turtle. Yes. The turtle. Yeah.
2: And all his life is in the water, so he cannot understand what water is. Right. But uh, when this tadpole grow, develop to a frog, the okay. day he okay. jumps,
1: Oh, yeah, so it's tadpole not turtle. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> right. Tadpole becomes a frog, jumps
2: out jump, of the water. Yeah. Jump out of water. Yeah. At the minute this this temple become frog and jump out, yes. the minute of this jumping, this temple would understand what water is. But as long as this temple is still in the water, mm-hmm. conceptually, he can say, okay, we're talking about water all the time. Yes. But we don't know what water is. Okay. Because the water is surrounded you in any way, many ways. Yes. You know, so.
1: yes. That and that, that is a very uh, that, that's a very good analogy. That's the analogy for the experience of the cessation of dukkha and the cessation of the cause of dukkha. Because it's when it ceases that you that's the point that you truly understand it
4: what
1: Dukkha is. Yes. Yeah, the understanding is approached by stages. We talk about it here and you can understand it conceptually. Mm-hmm. In meditation, you can come to understanding the truth that that this Dukkha pervades every aspect of our experience. It's at the point where the causes of Dukkha cease and Dukkha ceases, but that's like the, the frog that's been a tadpole leaping out of the water and now... This is a level of understanding that can never be lost. It can never be forgotten. It can—it's uh, it, permanently.
2: And also, that's the true understanding.
1: That's the true understanding. Yeah. Yes, that's that's and, and that's what we that's what we're working towards in the meditation practice. In the in the Dharma practice as a whole, that's what we're work, working towards. So now let's look at. The cause of dukkha. And the cause of dukkha is said to be the English word is craving, and that is a translation of the word in the Pali, tana. And it's a pretty good translation. Like, there is no word in English that really corresponds to dukkha, so we have to use a lot of explanation to expand that meaning. Uh, the English word "craving" is closer to the meaning of "tana," although "tana" goes more goes more, much more deeply in uh, the level of understanding that it encompasses. Craving, what is craving? Uh, craving is basically of two types: there's the craving for something, and there's the craving not to have something. So. Uh, We have the craving for something is desire. The the desire for another spoonful of soup. The desire for uh, uh, anything, whether it's a little thing or the most obsessive desire and lust that you experience. The desire for something is one form of craving. and Then the other is Aversion, the desire not to have something, a pain, whether it's it's a, the severe pain of a of a great injury, or whether it's the a, a minor itch, or whether it's an emotion of uh, of uh, fear or anxiety or anything else, whether it's being in the presence of somebody that you don't want, aversion, it's wanting something not to be there, so. Craving has both its positive and negative aspect, but it's all, it's all craving. And if we look at this and say, okay, what does craving ultimately boil down to? It boils down to wanting things to be different than the way they are. If you want something you don't have, That's wanting things to be different than the way they are. If you're wanting to not have something that is present, that's also wanting things not to be the way they are. Uh, Wanting things not to be the way they are, uh, another way we can describe that is is to say that we're not satisfied with the way things are. Craving is dissatisfaction. Ah, but didn't we say dukkha was unsatisfactoriness? <laughs> 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 well, of course, craving is the cause of of uh, dukkha. Right? <laughs> yes.
4: Yeah. Uh, you said um, craving is is for something uh, different. Mm-hmm. Uh, what about the craving for something? the same, like a, like, a, um, like, attachment, like you claim on something, mm-hmm. that's also craving, right?
1: Yeah, but...
4: Like my mother love, loves me, unconditional, yes, right. so I have this attachment, and, uh, mm-hmm. I, and I think that's unchanged, I mean, mm-hmm. that's unconditional.
1: And that, I don't that attachment, that craving, is a cause it it's a it is a cause of suffering in the future because loss is absolutely guaranteed and it's a cause of suffering in the present because we know that that loss will come someday and the way that we are with the things that we are attached to is we we do know even if we're not consciously thinking of it in the moment uh, we do know that they don't last and so we grasp more tightly onto them in the moment so the 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 unsatisfa- the dissatisfaction that is craving is knowing that indeed things are impermanent and we do know this if you if you were completely deluded and thought that you would never ever lose the thing you wanted, you wouldn't experience, as a matter of fact, you probably wouldn't experience attachment. You wouldn't need to. It's always going to be there anyway. So attachment in itself is, is the craving. It's the rejection uh, of the obvious truth that at the deepest level of our mind we already know that we will lose these things. But can you see the, the, the simplicity of the fact that craving craving is the cause of dissatisfaction, because as soon as, as soon as we experience craving, we're experiencing wanting things to be different than the way they are, wanting reality to be the reality to be something other than it is. So the cessation of dukkha and the cessation of craving are the same thing. They're one and the same. And you can you can understand that if you think about it. What is perfect happiness? I wouldn't want anything different than it is in the present moment. If everything is perfect right now, I'm going to experience happiness, right? A contented kind of happiness. A sublime, blissful kind of happiness. Not a joyful, excited kind of grasping on happiness, which is what we have when something... We know it's gonna pass away, so we're grabbing onto it. But the comfortable, blissful, contented, fulfilling, sublime happiness of not of having no craving, no desire for anything to be different than the way it is.
4: Yeah. You call them anything. What's that? Equanity.
1: Equanimity, absolutely. That's exactly right. Equanimity, perfect equanimity.
5: When the mind is getting closer to that state, uh, how come how come the body is also very very comfortable, here Why why would the body have so much pleasure? You know, when the mind is at peace.
1: There's nothing to keep the body from having. Pleasure. Now this is something we let's talk about pleasure and the physical pleasure and physical pain, because if you have no craving, then the the, the pain nerving and endings in your body are still going to produce the same sensations that they did before. And likewise, pleasurable sensations from the body are going to be produced in exactly the same way. So, in order to really understand this, we need to carefully understand the distinction between physical pain and pleasure and mental pain and pleasure. And this is something that, this is something that you need to gather insight from through observing yourself, through observing your experiences, both in meditation and out of meditation. Uh, we began talking about this last night. When you meditate on pain, one of the things that comes from meditating on pain is understanding the mental component of suffering and the physical part. So let's look at that at at the moment, because it's actually easier to understand in some ways than, than than pleasure is. First of all, I encourage you to begin immediately being aware of pleasure and pain Every experience you have, uh, is, is, it's a logical necessity that every physical sensation and every mental experience you have is going to either be pleasant or unpleasant or, or neutral. These are the only three possibilities, right? So that's pretty simple. So with only three possibilities, you should be able to start identifying uh, which each kind of experience is. So start observing that and noticing each sensation you have. Is it pleasant, is it unpleasant, or is it, it uh, neither? And the same thing with each thought, memory, emotion, uh, mental state that arises. Is it pleasant, or is it unpleasant, or, or is it neither? Now, I'll tell you what you'll find out. At first, at first it won't be as easy, to, it takes a little bit of practice. And at first you're not sure, there's things that are obviously pleasant and obviously unpleasant, and it seems like there's a lot of experiences that it's hard to tell exactly what they are. As you pay more and more attention and as your awareness increases, you'll be able to discriminate even the subtly pleasurable and the subtly unpleasant from the truly neutral. The other thing that you'll begin to realize is the reason that it's often difficult to tell is the sensation may be pleasant, but the mental reaction it produces may be unpleasant. When they're both the same, when the sensation is pleasant and then the mental response to the sensation is also pleasant, well it's obvious or when they're both unpleasant. But there are many cases, and you'll discover how many of these that there are, where the sensation is pleasant, but the mental reaction is unpleasant, or the sensation is unpleasant, but the mental response is uh, pleasant. Now, a particular kind of touch feels pleasant, but uh, that same touch, it depends on who or what is producing it. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Yeah. Your mental reaction. If it's if it's one kind of thing or one or, or one particular person that does this, ah, that's pleasant. But it could be it could be a different thing or a different person produce exactly the same sensation and the mind is averse mm-hmm. and rejects it. Mm-hmm. And likewise, are there not certain uh, foods that we learn to enjoy and savor that the actual taste of is somewhat unpleasant, but we 've learned the mind has learned to respond you know so this this extends into every aspect so uh, in order in order to truly understand the pleasant and the unpleasant in the world, we have to see that there is the pleasantness to do uh, the pleasantness and the unpleasantness to do with the physical and the pleasantness and the unpleasantness to do with the mental. And they kind of go in that order. There's the physical, and then it's followed downstream by the mental, and they can be the same, or they can be different. Once it starts to be clear, then you can look at something like pain. And you can, when you examine a painful sensation closely, you come to see it more and more as a sensation only, and as a sensation that has an unpleasant aspect to it. But you realize that what has been going on all of your life is that every time you experience the physical unpleasantness, it has been followed very closely by the mental reaction which has enormously magnified it. So when you start meditating on pain, and observing the pain, you will sometimes find that the pain that you look at becomes simply a sensation, it's just like a a vibration, and the unpleasant aspect is not there any longer. Sometimes you will be able to see that the the unpleasantness that's there uh, is often being generated mostly by the mind. There is one very beautiful thing. Uh, a, a, a great meditation teacher and uh, a friend of mine, Shinzen Young. You know, and I, I always like to quote his little nugget. <laughs> you know. He says that uh, suffering, this, uh, the, the mental experience of uh, suffering, is pain times resistance. And nothing times nothing is nothing.
0: So
1: you do the math, right? But and this idea, though, it's very true, and you can experience it directly yourself. When you have, you have a pain, and let's imagine that we could put this pain in, in mathematical units, and we say you have ten units of pain. It's not, that's not a lot, ten units of pain. But if you have ten units of resistance to that pain, which can come just when you have the thought, uh, oh, I'm not going to be able to stand this, this is never going to end. Or the thought, that, oh, what if this gets worse? Or you have the thought, oh, maybe this pain is damaging my body, or something like that. And so, but 10 units of pain times 10 units of resistance is 100 units of suffering, <laughs> Right? 10 units of pain times 1 unit of resistance is 10 units of pain now here is you will never even the buddha even a fully enlightened being cannot avoid the unpleasantness that arises from the body it's there and sickness and old age and death but if 1 unit if 10 units of pain is multiplied by 0 units of resistance which is to say 100% equanimity, which is to say no craving for things to be different, total acceptance, no unsatisfactoriness, then that 10 units of pain times zero resistance is zero suffering. So we can say that a Buddha in this way is completely free from suffering, because the mental reaction to the physical sensation is... Changing it to zero. Even long before that, though, you can start for yourself experiencing that, you know, if you if you're ill or if you have an injury and it causes pain, you can use this understanding that if you meet ten units of pain with only one or two or five units of resistance there will be not nearly as much suffering, and it becomes much... It's just another experience. Yes, an unpleasant experience, but just another experience, and not a cause for great mental trauma, and unhappiness and dissatisfaction.
5: Yeah. I, can, I can think of an example. Even a mundane person can, can, can suffer very little, although the pain is very tremendous. Uh, I think for just about everybody we all have people who are dear to us in our lives. And say for example if there's a bullet, you know, being shot to that dear person and then we actually cut that bullet for the person, yeah. you know the pain is, is just as much as the bullet if it's aimed for us. Yes. But the thing is our resistance to the pain is gonna be severely, you know, significantly less. Yes. Therefore we we'll, we we'll actually you know we actually feel alright. And then we actually may at some level be pretty happy that we took the bullet for somebody we cared a
1: lot about. Yes, that's absolutely true. Yes. So.
2: I actually had that experience during the uh, vipassana mm-hmm. meditation. I meditated yeah. on my pain. Yes. Yeah. And that exactly happened when I did that meditation. And you my stopped resisting. Strong pain. Um, uh, I get into that moment. It's become kind of pleasure. Because the concept is gone. Mm -hmm. When I very concentrated watching that pain, Mm -hmm. the concept cannot get in to fool my mind and it's just the the pain itself, no label and no concept. So at that time I realized it's just a sensation. It doesn't if if you don't label it. It's not either pain or pleasure. It's just a sensation. It's
1: just a sensation.
5: Yeah. Yeah. It's,
2: that happened.
5: It's kind of weird because sometimes when I'm in great pain, I actually will laugh. I'll say, And oh, it, it's, it's, you know, it's like, uh, it's weird. And then I'll actually, yeah, it just seems like it's just a matter of how the mind interprets mm-hmm. yeah. it. I'm, I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> is, is
4: neutrality the same as equanimity? Is
1: no neutrality well uh, i was the neutrality I was talking about in terms of things are pleasant, unpleasant, and neither is not the same as equanimity okay, and when we speak of equanimity we 're not talking about arriving at a place of of neutrality we 're talking about arriving at a place where we neither grasp onto or Push away. So, whether the the sense a, a sensation that arises may have the quality of pleasantness or unpleasantness, but regardless, uh, if we neither grasp onto nor push away, then that's equanimity. Okay. Yes.
4: Um, when we examine um, sensations. Uh, you know, when when they're pleasant, or unpleasant, or neutral, um, is it possible that the mind fools itself? Like thinking maybe certain type of, um, something that's unpleasant but it identifies as pleasant, and then if it's something that's pleasant and vice versa. Like, for example, um, you know, like say we go on a roller coaster mm-hmm. at a very high point when it drops, mm-hmm. it's actually uncomfortable. Yeah. But people get a big thrill out of it. Mm-hmm. So, so, is that because the mind foods itself thinking that it's actually something fun? So, identify <laughs> that pleasure, that, that sensation as a pleasure?
1: <laughs> well, in, in that particular example, which is probably a pretty good there's a combination of different things going on. The excitement is causing uh, certain hormones to be released in, in the body that produce a, a a kind of pleasure as well. A person doesn't enjoy... Not everyone enjoys a roller coaster. And a person would not enjoy a roller coaster at all unless they had the trust that uh, e- e- even though... It, it seems as though the car may go off the track. If you don't have the trust and the belief that it's not going to happen, it's a terrifying experience and there is absolutely no pleasure in it at all. <laughs> so, uh, but this is, this is actually a, a good example if uh, there, is, there is the exhilaration and the pleasure of the exhilaration and there is the body 's gut reaction of fear, which is unpleasant, but if you have confidence you don 't resist uh, you don't resist the fear and you don 't resist the experience you don't you don't fight against it and you see this is what happens when we are afraid when you 're on the Titanic and it 's sinking <laughs> if you if you fight the inevitable then you will go down with a maximum degree of suffering. If you surrender and accept what's happening, then you won't. Who knows? I, I never went down with a Titanic, but maybe you'll experience <laughs> the pleasure of the exhilaration.
0: <laughs>
1: but at least you can see that in the case of the, of, of the roller coaster, something, there is something that is allowing you not to resist. The trust, the confidence. Because if you if you resist, some people can never go on a roller coaster because they can never stop resisting, right? And it's a terrible experience for them. You make them go, and say, "Oh, you'll like it." And what do they say afterwards? You'll never ever get me to do that again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The resistance makes the experience into total miserable suffering. So. And of course, some people get. Uh, addicted to the pleasure and the exhilaration of the adrenaline that's released. You know, there's some people that they spend their life going from one thing to another always looking for that adrenaline high. So so that's the other side of it. So, so it's not quite this. It, that's a more complicated example. So, yes?
0: I heard a story, you uh, all a western lady uh, He went to Thailand, mm-hmm. into the meditation, and he... Um, become a monk, and uh, in the beginning of the, uh, go to the forest center, and he noticed that the small monks in the in the truck, this is the, the, the the surface of the road is pretty pretty rough, mm-hmm. so the car is keep bumping mm-hmm. up and down, so the, the small monks when the when their head uh, hit the roof of the of the car, so the small monks began to laugh. Just just laughing. So uh, he was very surprised. It's supposed to be very painful, so why are you laughing? Uh, so um, the monks telling that, if you love the the suffering, the degree of suffering, actually reduced. In China, sure. <laughs> <laughs> and he tried, it's true. tried, it's true as well. <laughs> does that,
2: does that yeah. explain that uh, the stream winner? So in the sutra, they describe that the stream winner when they're facing the death, they treat it like they are going to the party. Can that explain that?
1: Well, uh, yes, it does. it does. Now, not every stream winner might necessarily have that degree of equanimity, but a stream winner, many stream winners will, and of course the once-returners and the non-returners will definitely... The thing that changes with when you become awakened and you see and understand things the way they really are is that life and death are a great adventure. Right? So, yeah, death is just the next part of the great adventure. So.
2: And because they have a trust, because they really see things they are, so they have this uh, ultimate trust, okay. so they no longer fear.
1: Yeah, because what's dying, the body and the mind, are what's breaking up, but they know, that they, they no longer believe that they are the body and the mind, so. Okay, well this is a good discussion. Maybe we'll continue on the same topic tomorrow. So please, Think, reflect, and definitely observe pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral mental and physical sensation. Okay? So thank you very much and we'll take a little break, just a brief one because I talked during your break. So take five minutes or so to stretch and then we'll come and sit together.